Hello, welcome to the Logcast. This is season four, episode four, and we're just gonna keep moving on with the whole archival project, rare and friends slash the Logcast. So, uh, at the beginning of season four, in the first episode, I mentioned that there would be some unreleased goodies. And this is the first episode to feature any of that. Um, But let's get to what the main meat of this is going to be. Um, So if you've seen the title, you've probably gathered that this is um, a collection of the reviews we did on our YouTube channel. Uh, By reviews, I mean we just jetpack and and ukulele. Um, So we're going to have both those uh, episodes on this show. Um... The thing that's unreleased is during the production of uh, the Jetpack episode, uh, the narration, uh, the narrator was changed, but the there was a sort of test audio done of the narration um, before that switch, so I have both versions. <laughs> I have the final produced version, um, as it was released on the YouTube channel, and then I have the original version with all the bloopers. Uh, I'm not. I didn't edit any of it, so um, I basically put a little bit of jetpack music on the back of it, uh, made the audio a little bit louder and cleaned it up a bit, and I'm just going to play them both back to back for when we uh, go over the jetpack video. Uh, that being said, um, since these are videos, they're they mostly work as audio. Um, the thing that is missing is the scores um i think the overall score is mentioned at the end in the audio but not sort of our individual scores uh, that each staff member um selected so um after i play each video i'm actually going to read through uh what the scores were just to give you a general idea of what you missed I think I have a little bit more time to do that this episode since um, the runtime of all the audio content I think is like less than 40 minutes. I'm not sure. Not very much. Maybe 50. Um, Anyway, uh, so I'm going to start off, um, as I said, playing both the Jetpack audios back to back. uh, The early version and the final version and then I will go through the scores. So, without further ado, um, here you go. Hi guys, it's Kev, and I'm here to welcome you to the inaugural video review from Rare and Friends. In the last 18 months, David, myself and the team have covered just about every fansite trope except for traditional game reviews. Well, that's all about to change. Sort of. See, whereas most video reviews on the internet will focus on the efforts of a single reviewer exploring the depths, thematics and technical merits of a particular title, here at Round Friends we've decided to do things a little bit differently. Whilst you'll be stuck with one of our obnoxious mugs for the majority of these reviews, they've been a more collaborative effort than you might expect. The full staff roster, currently David, myself, Jeff, Clay and Agent Ape, are going to individually score each game so that we can find an overall average Rare and Friends review score for each title. But more on that later. The first game we're going to look at is the one that started it all, Jetpack. 
to understand the development of jetpack. <clears throat> Screw that. Try again. To understand the development of jetpack itself, we must look at the formation of what would eventually become Rare. Rare's early history is an interesting one. The brothers Stamper, that is Chris and Tim, and Carol Stamper, Tim's wife, collaborated in 1982 to set up Ashby Computers and Graphics, a development studio of sorts which focused on creating software for the relatively new ZX Spectrum, the UK market leader of the time. The trading name of the company was Ultimate Play the Game, though most fans and press would shorten this to simply Ultimate. Jetpack was the first title that the Stampers developed for the Spectrum, and the game was initially released in 1983 in two formats, as a standard Spectrum cassette and also as a cartridge, which was compatible with the ill-fated ZX Interface 2 add-on for the Spectrum. It was the first of only 10 games released in this format. This was quickly followed by a port to the Commodore VIC-20 in the same year for our American cousins, and also to the BBC Micro in 1984, a rival computer which unfortunately stole Spectrum's market share, but that's another story. As a solid first title from Ultimate, Jetpack solidified its place in gaming history despite being relatively unknown outside of the UK at the time. Have a little bit of water, Claire. Mm. Ah. For an admirably simple game with relatively modest ambitions, the story is suitably subdued. You are Jetman, a space pilot on a mission to do something, en route to wherever the lad's going. He ends up. Uh, Sorry, gotta start that one again. Mm. You are Jetman, a spice. A spice, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Clay. <clears throat> you are Jetman, a space pilot on a mission to do something. En route to wherever the lad's going, he ends up crashing his ship, which breaks into three equal parts. He also seems to have a super tiny fuel tank, which means he has to keep making pit stops to refuel. It's a good job that all of these strange, unexplored alien worlds have giant pink boxes full of fuel. Handy that. Now let's make no mistake, Jetpack is hardly going to cause your spectrum to overheat. However, despite being relatively simple, the game is rather pleasant to look at. As a single screen experience, the Sampers took advantage of the extra memory and flooded the screen with multiple enemies of varying designs and attack patterns. These enemies are randomly generated in different in different <clears throat> These enemies are randomly generated in differing solid colors, subtly improving the player's perception of each enemy rather than all blurring into one solid blob. The sprites for the rocket ship themselves <clears throat> The sprites for the rocket ships themselves are nicely detailed also and I'm a big fan of the visual effect for Jetman's gunfire. As mentioned previously, there's no 
As mentioned previously, there is no denying that Jetpack is a reasonably simple game, especially when compared to Ultimate's very own subsequent releases for the Spectrum. This is not a pejorative, however. Simple doesn't always mean bad, and this holds true for Jetpack. Once you get a hold on the controls, it can be a very fulfilling and joyous experience. Jetman can walk, shoot, fly, using the titular Jetpack itself. There, hang on. <clears throat> Sorry, mate. Screw that up. Jetman can walk, shoot, and fly using the titular jetpack, and even use an often overlooked hover feature to hold himself in a fixed position on the Y axis whilst moving left to right. As you work your way through the game, the enemies change their attack patterns, with the game generally getting harder and harder. The game is divided into 16 stages and arguably 4 chapters. For example, stage 1 will require Jetman to rebuild his ship before fueling up, whereas stages 2 to 4 only ask him to collect the fuel. In stage 5, Jetman has crashed a different ship and the cycle repeats. After reaching level 17, the game begins looping without a credit sequence. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot to say about the sound and music of the game. There are no melodies, and the audio language of the game is conveyed using bleeps and bloops. It's hard to fault Rare, or Ultimate at the time, for this though, as the Spectrum had very poor audio hardware. That sentence didn't come across right. Let me read that last bit out again, Clay. It's hard to fault Ultimate at the time though for this, because the Spectrum had very poor audio hardware. I would argue that despite being Ultimate's simplest Spectrum game, and debatably the simplest game in Rare's entire back catalogue, Jetpack offers a surprising amount of replayability. I first discovered this game via Donkey Kong 64, and I'm not ashamed to say that I played it more times than was necessary to progress in that game. After rediscovering this gem via Rare Replay, I've played it much, much more, and learned to play it reasonably well. Once you get to grips with the mechanics, I think you'll plug far more time into this one than you would have ever expected. Just another drink, mate. <clears throat> ah, Pepsi Max. So, was the game a success? Well, it's a tricky one to answer, really. It put Ultimate on the map back in 1983 and definitely helped the Stampers with the tiny startup that would eventually become one of the highest regarded gaming studios in the industry. However, the majority of their early success was contained mainly within the niche British home PC gaming crowd. The sequel that followed, Lunar Jetman, was another cult hit among the same circles in the UK, and eventually a third title hit the NES some years later titled Solar Jetman, which saw a fairer spread of popularity across the globe. Jetman went into hibernation after this until he received his most mainstream appearance to date uh, when the original Jetpack was an unlockable bonus game in the multi-million selling smash hit Donkey Kong 64. Players were forced to collect 5,000 points in Jetpack to unlock an item required for reaching the final boss in Donkey Kong 64 itself. What a wacky and wonderful way to force people to try out the game. Especially back in this era when emulating or porting classic games on new systems was barely a thing, 
especially on Nintendo consoles. Jetpack Refueled was released on my 19th birthday, funnily enough, the 28th of March 2007, for the Xbox Live Arcade, of course. Containing a gorgeous yet surprisingly restrained reimagining of the core concept, plus support of the original game, it sold reasonable numbers for a digital release of that era and helped the series to gain more international recognition once again. Finally, we hit Rare Replay in 2015, which surprisingly included emulations of all three 80s Jetman games, plus a copy of Jetpack Refueled, meaning the entire history of the character is available on a single disc, save for the DK64 cameo. What's brilliant about this is that you can play the port of the original Jetpack on the Jetpack Refueled game, which features smoother frame rate and animations, or you can opt to play a direct emulation of the original title, warts and all. It really is the best solution for every kind of gamer. There's quite a That's quite a long legacy for such a small and basic game. Jetpack has clearly touched a number of players around the world, and even though I was a little late to the party, I can happily say it's definitely a classic and well worth playing in any way you can. Hi guys, Clay here, welcoming you to the inaugural episode of Rare and Friends Reviews. In the last 18 months, David and the team have covered just about every fan site trope except for traditional game reviews. Well that's all about to change. Sort of. See, whereas most video reviews on the internet will focus on the efforts of a single reviewer exploring the depths, thematics, and technical merits of a particular title, here at Rare and Friends we've decided to do things a little bit differently. While you'll be stuck with one of our obnoxious voices for the majority of these reviews, they've been more of a collaborative effort than you might expect. The full staff roster, David, Jeff, and myself, are going to individually score each game so that we can find an overall average Rare and Friends review score for each title. But more on that later. The first game we're going to look at is the one that started it all. Jetpack. To understand the development of Jetpack itself, we must look at the formation of what would eventually become Rare. Rare's early history is an interesting one. The brothers Stamper, that is Chris and Tim, and Carol Stamper, Tim's wife, collaborated in 1982 to set up Ashby Computers and Graphics, a development studio of sorts which focused on creating software for the relatively new ZX Spectrum, the UK market leader at the time. The trading name of the company was Ultimate Play the Game, though most fans and press would shorten this to simply Ultimate. Jetpack was the first title that the Stampers developed for the Spectrum, and the game was initially released in 1983 in two formats, as a standard Spectrum cassette and also as a cartridge, which was compatible with the ill-fated ZX Interface 2 add-on for the Spectrum. It was the first of only 10 games released in this format. This was quickly followed up by a port to the Commodore VIC-20 in the same year for us Americans, the Commodore Vic 20. and also to the BBC Micro in 1984, a rival computer which, 
unfortunately stole Spectrum's market share, but that's another story. As a solid first title from Ultimate, Jetpack solidified its place in gaming history despite being relatively unknown outside of the UK. For an admirably simple game with relatively modest ambitions, the story is simply subdued. You are Jetman, space pilot on a mission to do something. En route to wherever this guy is going, he ends up crashing his ship which breaks into three equal parts. He also seems to have a super tiny fuel tank, which means he has to keep making pit stops to refuel. It's a good job that all these strange, unexplored alien worlds have giant pink boxes of fuel. How handy is that? Now let's make no mistake, Jetpack is hardly going to cause your spectrum to overheat. However, despite being relatively simple, the game is rather pleasant to look at. As a single screen experience, the Stampers took advantage of the extra memory and flooded the screen with multiple enemies of varying designs and attack patterns. These enemies are randomly generated in different solid colors, subtly improving the player's perception of each enemy rather than them all blurring together in one single blob. The sprites for the rocket ship themselves are nicely detailed and also, I'm a pretty big fan of the visual effect for Jetman's gunfire. As mentioned previously, there is no denying that Jetpack is a reasonably simple game, especially when compared to Ultimate's own very subsequent releases for the Spectrum. This is not a pejorative, however. Simple doesn't always mean bad, and this holds true for Jetpack. Once you get a hold of the controls, it can be a very fulfilling and joyous experience. Jetman can walk, shoot, fly, using the titular jetpack itself, and even use an often overlooked hover feature to hold himself in a fixed position on the Y-axis whilst moving left to right. As you work your way through the game, the enemies change their attack patterns, with the game generally getting harder and harder. The game is divided into 16 stages and arguably 4 chapters. For example, Stage 1 will require Jetman to rebuild his ship before fueling up, whereas Stages 2 to 4 only ask him to collect the fuel. In Stage 5, Jetman has crashed a different ship and the cycle repeats. After reaching level 17, the game begins looping without a credit sequence. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot to say here about the sound and music of the game. There are no melodies, and the audio language of the game is conveyed using bleeps and bloops. It's hard to fault Ultimate at the time, though, as the Spectrum had very poor audio hardware. I would argue that despite being Ultimate's simplest Spectrum game, and debatably the simplest game in Rare's entire back catalog, Jetpack offers a surprising amount of replayability. I first discovered this game via Donkey Kong 64, and I'm not ashamed to say that I played it more times than was necessary to progress in that game. After rediscovering this gem via Rare Replay, I played it much, much more, and learned to play it reasonably well. Once you get the grips with the mechanics, I think you'll plug far more time in this than you'd expect. So, was this game a success? Well, that's a tricky one to answer. It put Ultimate on the map back in 1983 and definitely helped the Stampers with their tiny startup that would eventually become one of the highest regarded gaming studios in the industry. However, the majority of their early success was contained mainly within the niche British home PC gaming crowd. The sequel that followed, Lunar Jetman, was another cult hit amongst the same circles in the UK 
and eventually a third title hit the NES some years later titled Solar Jetman, which saw a fair spread of popularity across the globe. Jetman went into hibernation after this until he received his most mainstream appearance to date. The original Jetpack was an unlockable bonus game in the multi-million selling smash hit Donkey Kong 64. Players were forced to collect 5,000 points in Jetpack to unlock an item required for reaching the final boss in DK64 itself. What a wacky and wonderful way to force people to try out a game! Especially back in this era when emulating classic games on a new system was barely a thing. Especially on Nintendo consoles. Jetpack Refueled was released on March 28, 2007 for the Xbox Live Arcade. Containing a gorgeous yet surprisingly restrained reimagining of the core concepts plus a port of the original game. It sold reasonable numbers for a digital release of that era and again helped the series to gain more international recognition. Finally, we hit Rare Replay in 2015, which surprisingly included emulations of all three 80s Jetman games, plus a copy of Jetpack Refueled, meaning that the entire history of the character is available on a single disc, save for the DK64 game. What's brilliant about this is that you can play the port of the original Jetpack on Jetpack Refueled, which means smoother frame rate and animations, or opt to play the direct emulation of the original title with the warts and all. It really is the best solution for every type of gamer. That's quite a long legacy for such a small and basic game. Jetpack has clearly touched a number of players around the world, and even though I was a little late to the party, I can happily say that it's definitely a classic and well worth playing in any way you can. Rare and Friends gives Jetpack an overall 7 out of 10. Hey guys, this is Clay. Thanks so much for watching our video. If you enjoyed it, please give it a like and follow us for more reviews in the future. Also, check out some of our other videos here. See you next time. All right, I'm back. Hope you found that enjoyable. I think out of like everything we did, I feel like these two review episodes, we probably put the most sheer amount of time and energy into making them. And I am really super just proud of how they turned out and Clay did such a fantastic job um, editing these together. And they just, uh, yeah, they're just, they're good, you know? Something we did was, like, pretty good. Um, anyway, as promised, since the only score mentioned in that video was the final score, so I had the assets that we used to make that video still, and I'm hoping they didn't change from the final video because I'm just going to read from the assets what our scores were. And uh, let me pull this up real quick. Um... Bear in mind that these are not probably the same order as they appeared in the video. I'm just going by file names here. So, all right. First off, 
uh, for gameplay. David, yours truly, has rated it a 7.5. Tip Top the Turtle, 8. My man Jeff Ron Perez, 8. Video Master Clay, 8. And Andrew, 5. We're an overall of 7.5 for the gameplay. Uh, once again, we have that David, 7. Tipped up, 7.5. Jeff Ron, 8. Clay, 8. Andrew, 6. Set 7, overall 7.5 for graphics. If I didn't say that was graphics, that was for graphics. And now we have replay value. The rare replay value. We have David with an 8. Tipped up with an 8. Uh, Jeff with an 8, Clay with a 9, Andrew with a 5, for a total of 7.5. And we have sound music. We have uh, David with 6.5, tipped up with 6.5, Jeff with 7, Clay with 6, Andrew with 5, for an overall of 6. Story setting, we have David with a 6, tipped up with a 7, Jeff with a 6, Clay with a 5, Andrew with a 5 for an overall of 6. And the overall rating, um, we have David with a 7, tipped up with an 8, Jeff with an 8, um, Clay with 7.5, Andrew with 5.5 for an overall 7 out of 10 for Jetpack. All right. So, that is it for the first one. Um, next up, we have our uh, ukulele review. And I remember, I can't really remember this one actually too much. I think I watched it once. I didn't write it. I contributed my scores because I remember I was kind of the one that liked the game more than everyone else. I remember being slightly annoyed that they didn't like it as much as me. <laughs> so it, this is going to be kind of a uh, fun thing for me too to re to uh, revisit this one and and see if I still disagree with bits of it. So, anywho, I'm going to stop talking and let you bask in the glory that is our ukulele review. Ukulele is a fun, whimsical, nostalgic, albeit slightly flawed, 3D platformer from Platonic Games. Created by some of the talent behind Banjo-Kazooie, Donkey Kong 64, and a few other games you may remember from Rare in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. The game was a Kickstarter darling, the quickest game ever to reach $1 million, and the highest funded British game on the crowdfunding site at the time. Its development took just over two years, which is a bit of a marvel for a new intellectual property in this day and age, but it is still just as chock full of the humor and charm that made the games that inspired it such hits in their time. That said, it still has its share of quirks and problems in design, gameplay, and overall technical performance that keep it from reaching the same bar that was set by its predecessors. Come along with us as Rare and Friends reviews Ukulele. The game's story is intentionally ludicrous, akin to the silly and simplistic plotlines of the games that inspired it. 
What sets it apart, however, is how its setting is more coherent and tied together, and how external parts of the lore are alluded to and left open to be fleshed out in future platonic titles. The story is set up with Laylee, our bat protagonist, finding a book with golden pages among a wrecked ship high in the mountains. She and her buddy Yuka, a bipedal chameleon, seem to have just moved into the place and are resting after painting it to match their style. As Laylee is admiring her new treasure, the book is suddenly whisked away into the sky, heading towards the nearby corporate offices known as the Hivory Towers. As it floats away among a sea of other floating books, the golden pages within, known as pages, scatter away, presumably strewn all over nearby locales. Yuka and Laylee then set off on an adventure to retrieve the magical tome. Along their journey, Yuka and Laylee explore the corporate office, as well as five worlds found within books throughout the towers. The Hivory Towers hub world is a bit of a maze, with heavy use of hexagonal honeycomb shapes to suit the style of the game's antagonist, Capital B. The duo finds out that he has no intention of returning their lost book to them, but rather had been in search of it while drawing all of the world's books towards his office. With a vibrant yet dark art style, the hub world itself is pleasing on the eye, and has very distinct sections that are reasonably easy to differentiate from one another. Excellent texture work and moody lighting add to the atmosphere within the area, giving a much more moody feel of the environment. As Yuka and Laylee collect pages, they begin to unlock the game's worlds found within the tomes around the towers. The first world is called Tribal Stack Tropics, a jungle-themed world with ruins of some sort of ancient civilization dotting the landscape. Each world in the game starts with a predetermined smaller state and can be expanded as the player collects more pages. The expansion for the first world adds a huge mountain that gives the level a very vertical progression. I found it to be an excellent starting level for this reason. You can see most of the world from any other high point in the world, and can use the tallest mountain as a point of reference for navigating, similar to several levels found in the first Banjo-Kazooie game. The level, however, does have instant death pits within and surrounding it, making it a little less forgiving than most games' first worlds typically are. Since the game doesn't use a live system, it's never too much of a hassle, however. Exploring the level felt natural and enjoyable, being rewarded by finding the level's quills strewn about and new pagey challenges around nearly every bend. The quills are used as a currency to purchase new moves from a snake character called Trouser. While the moves are technically unlockable in any order, some aren't offered until later levels. Within each world, our heroes must collect 25 pages, 200 quills, 5 ghost riders, and an increasing item for both health and power. Though it seems like a lot to collect, it never felt like the worlds were dragging on while in search of these collectibles, and the variety of challenges to achieve pages was excellent. The game uses a health system similar to its predecessors, with a number of butterfly icons in the upper left corner of the user interface, used to indicate how much health the duo has. The power system is a new implementation meant to alleviate the need to collect different items for different moves. It is shown as a green bar just under the health icons. A breakthrough in game design for restoring either of these meters is that they share a single collectible to replenish them, pink butterflies. When Yuka eats these airborne bugs with his lizard tongue move, health is replenished. When the characters simply touch them, however, it replenishes the power meter. 
It should also be noted that the power meter will automatically replenish on its own after a few moments of not utilizing a move that drains it. Overall, I found the new health and power system to be a great deal better than the older ways of managing those sorts of things and appreciated the way in which the player is rewarded with butterflies for defeating groups of enemies. Beyond the first world, the four remaining worlds offer a good variety of settings and atmospheres. The second is a snow level called Glitter Glaze Glacier, with castle-like towers rising above the snowy tundra and icy waters of the world. The art direction of this level is excellent, utilizing warm tones from a low sunset to accentuate the cool color palette defining the snow and ice. The expansion of the level actually opens up the towers to the interior of the castle, known as the Isometric Palace. It's set up like some of Rare's earliest games, utilizing an isometric view of the action and single rooms being loaded at a time. It's an excellent twist on the world-expanding mechanic, and though some may find it to be slightly disappointing, I found it to be very clever and a good way of following through on the expandable world's promise. The third world in the game is a swamp level named Moody Maze Marsh. If you're a fan of the previous games from this creative team, you may get a sense of some of their previous works shining through in the look, layout, and mood of this level. If I had to classify it, I'd say that it was a mix of Mad Monster Mansion and Bubble Gloop Swamp from Banjo-Kazooie and Fungi Forest from Donkey Kong 64. Several jack-o'-lanterns appear throughout the level, setting a spooky mood for the dark and foreboding-looking swamp. Luminescent mushrooms provide an interesting lighting effect in certain areas. Overall, this world pulls off well what it's meant to, rather than being too dark and lacking in color. The expansion of this world is somewhat subtle and just expands outward from the core level when unlocked. The next world in the game is casino-themed, aptly named Capital Casino. It's got a very bright and golden visual aesthetic, with bright lights and all the sounds you would associate with a casino. Marble textures and chandeliers add to the luxurious feel of the location. And the expansion of this level is similar to the second in that it doesn't physically expand the core of the level, rather it unlocks two new areas by opening some security doors that were on the perimeter of the casino floor. An interesting mechanic of this level is that rather than most challenges rewarding the player with pages, as with other levels, the bulk of the rewards of this level are casino tokens, of which the player can redeem 10 for a pagey. Unfortunately, due to a major glitch in the way the game saves, it is possible to lose pages that you had previously banked if you don't save at a separate time after cashing a large amount of tokens. It's unfortunate because, as of now, there's no way to recover those lost pages, and you must restart the game if you plan to beat it 100%. The final level is called Galleon Galaxy, and it is a space-themed level with a futuristic neon look to it. It takes place across a cosmic ocean of harmful liquid. In that regard, it is similar to the third world, but without the visual obstructions found in that level's trees. The level has warp tubes around it, something not found in any of the other worlds, yet I've never once used them, as by this point in the game you learn the flying move, which can be used anywhere, and I just opt for that each time. The expansion of this world is again similar to the third, expanding laterally outward away from the starting point. Overall, this level is pleasing to look at and has a nice futuristic look to it, but it is a bit on the sparse side compared to the prior levels. In the grand scheme of what the game sets out to achieve, it accomplishes what it needs to with the story and setting without any extra or mind-blowing bells and whistles. It feels right for the type of game that it's meant to be, a return to 3D platformers of the 90s with a few modern twists. Rare and Friends gives the story and setting a 7 out of 10. The game's graphics are bright and vibrant, with great texture work and good lighting effects. Each world has a strong art direction to it, and the overall look of the game is very reminiscent of the games that inspired it. 
where this team utilized pre-rendered lighting to set mood and ambiance in older games, newer hardware has allowed them to cast strong and mood-setting shadows in real time, mostly with positive results. The biggest issue with the lighting of this game pertains to the shadows. When a strong shadow ends up being projected fairly far away from a light source, its pixels are stretched and it usually ends up blocky and rather unpleasant to the eye. Additionally, shadows across the curved surface of Yuka's face tend to look very jaggy, again due to the low resolution in which they are drawn. It's not terrible, but it's certainly noticeable enough to mention here. Textures all seem to have bump mapping or a similar technique, which is a great effect for a game with more cartoony visuals. The added depth it adds to objects that are being lit real-time, which for this game is all of them, definitely adds to the visual appeal of the game. Another comment that I have about the graphics is how the game handles reflections, or rather how it does not. In the most recent game in this genre that this team made, Banjo-Kazooie Nuts and Bolts, reflections on water were properly drawn and gave the world an extra touch of realism that was above and beyond anything they had done before. For this game, however, they went with a less hardware-intensive solution that, in my opinion, has very poor results. They project the current screen image onto the, a watery texture and call it good. This becomes very distracting for two reasons. You end up seeing the purple and green colors of Yuka and Laylee that would not naturally be reflecting back, and you don't see the reflections of anything that protrudes up from the surface of the water. It's distracting when you're used to seeing real-time reflections rendered in games, and it breaks the immersion for me quite a bit. The last visual issue I had was with the frame rate. Though it mostly stayed steady near 30 frames per second for me on the Xbox One, it did occasionally stutter when the game was drawing multiple effect sprites or rendering transparency effects. It was never too bad to the point of impacting the gameplay, with the exception of one instance where the game completely stopped for a second or two. Overall, the graphics are very well done in this game and some technical shortcomings keep them from being truly spectacular. We give the game a 9 out of 10 for its graphics. Ukulele's gameplay is incredible at best and frustrating at its worst. The characters handle well in their native state and the moves you can learn are varied and well thought out. The updated swimming mechanics make exploring underwater far simpler than it was in the games that inspired this one, whereas the new flying mechanic makes navigating the skies a bit more awkward than in previous games. Swimming keeps your character on a level Y-axis with X and Z-axis controlled by the left analog stick. Two buttons are designated for raising and lowering the characters. This makes getting objects and other navigational objectives much easier than they were in the older games. On the flip side, flying is handled in a way where you must tilt the control stick forward to propel the characters that direction, while also controlling left and right movement at the same time. This makes it a bit more difficult than the olden days when your characters typically moved forward on their own and the stick controlled like an airplane. This game also features transformations similar to those found in Banjo-Kazooie and Tui, where your characters are completely changed into another creature or machine with a new control scheme and set of moves. Several of the transformations in this game tend to control a bit less favorably than the duo do in their natural state. For example, in World 2 the characters are turned into a snowplow. It drives well enough and drifts in the snow as it should. However, if you overshoot hitting something you're aiming for or try to do some nuanced platforming, it quickly becomes a chore as the plow has a very wide turning radius and cannot back up. That means if you're close to a ledge and need to adjust, you're likely going to fall off. Since most of the required platforming takes place over water, your character instantly transforms back into their usual selves every time you fall, meaning that you have to go back and transform once again. The final level also sees our heroes transform into a pirate ship. 
but it too has some wonky controls. They're not too bad for exploring the level and clearing obstacles. However, because the world's boss requires you to fight it as the ship, it becomes cumbersome trying to avoid its attacks. The largest glaring issue in the game, in my opinion, is its camera system. It often catches on scenery, locks into a certain angle with no freedom to make slight adjustments, or straight up cuts to a different angle mid-action. There are plenty of places where it is intelligent enough to present the player with an optimal viewpoint for the task at hand, yes. But there are just as many, if not more times, that it is just a pain to control or can't keep the action in the right frame of view. Even if the camera would do a quick swing into some of the positions that it cuts to, like the top of an elevator in World 1, it may not have been as big of an issue. But as it sits now, it is just a bit too much of a hassle to fight the camera while also trying to complete challenges or see items that you're trying to obtain. All in all, the game is a pleasure to play, and although the issues I mentioned before do drag it down a little, it's still a fine example of what 3D platforming should feel like. We give Ukulele's gameplay an 8 out of 10. Ukulele's music and sound are an overall joy to listen to, though sometimes the retro-sounding character voices can be a bit on the annoying side. <laughs> the game's music is expertly composed by three veterans of Rare's olden days, with the majority of the tracks coming from Grant Kirkhope, and additional tracks written by David Wise and Steve Burke. Though the three's musical styles are vastly different, I didn't ever feel like it was any sort of hodgepodge of musical accompaniment. The tunes written for specific tasks work well for the areas that they are used in. A big difference to me in the use of level theme songs is that they are more ambient sounding in this game than the ones in the older games. In games like Banjo-Kazooie, it almost felt as if the musical themes were adding to the worlds themselves, defining a strong feeling of character. In this game, they're more of a complement to the worlds and take a bit more of a backseat. They are by no means bad tunes, in fact I really grew to love them as I played the game. I just didn't come away from the game humming any of the songs like I did with the games on the Nintendo 64. The game's sound effects are very well done, and a good variety of sounds are used to convey the appropriate physical interactions or character utterances throughout the world. As mentioned before, the voices of the characters themselves are a bit annoying at times. They were intentionally made to work like the voices in the Banjo-Kazooie series, with syllables of different sounds cut up and played back to emulate a voice. It works better for some characters than others, but in the end is just a nod to the past rather than something that adds to the game. The sounds and music for this game earn a 9 out of 10. The replay value of this game is a tricky thing to assess. Due to the loads of challenges and collectibles, one could argue that it's a game that can be replayed many times with plenty of enjoyment. On the flip side, because there are so many things as there are, it could be argued that it's a bit daunting to repeat some of the tasks multiple times, especially some of the specialty challenges like minecart or arcade game sections. In my opinion, I lean towards the side of not wanting to replay this one as much because the discovery and search for the unknown is something that I love so very much. As a first playthrough, this game is a wonderful adventure into a new world. On the subsequent runs, it's a bit less exciting. That said, having knowledge of later moves that you learn may affect how you tackle challenges in earlier parts of the game, so I give the game credit for at least offering some player choice in that regard. The level expansion mechanic isn't exciting enough to me to warrant any sort of bonus for completing things with or without the expansions. 
I could take it or leave it, and on a second playthrough I would just opt to expand as soon as possible so as not to be locked out of pages or quills. All in all, this is a game that can be enjoyed multiple times, but may be a little less enjoyable with each pass at it. We give the replay value an 8 out of 10. Overall, Ukulele is a wonderful game created by some of the most talented artists, programmers, and all-around creative people in the games industry. It seems clear that the game was rushed to a release date before it was completely ready, most likely due to the obligations that come with crowdfunding a game. It has some great new ideas and updates old ones in ways that progress the genre. It's very enjoyable as a 3D platform adventure game and serves up nostalgia by the spoonful. If it weren't for the technical issues and major glitches, I'd even go so far as to call it a modern masterpiece of a game. Unfortunately, because of the issues that are found throughout it, it's not quite at that level. On the plus side, as of this review, Platonic has stated that they are working on a pretty major patch to fix some of the glaring issues and major glitches of the game. With all factors considered and each of the site staff weighing in, we give Ukulele an 8 out of 10. For additional coverage of this game and future titles from Platonic Games, keep up with Rare and Friends on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Should have been 9 out of 10. But what you gonna do? You know, democracy and all that. You know the thing that Mark Zuckerberg is currently trying to erode with Facebook. So, um, once again, let's go over, go over the scores, the scores, and conveniently I did not open them up. Okay, so, for gameplay, we have David with a 9, Kev with an 8, Jeff with an 8, Clay with an 8, overall 8. Graphics, we have David with a 9, Kev with an 8, Jeff with an 8. Play with a 9. Overall, 9. Replay value. David with a 10. Kev with a 7. Jeff with a 7. Clay with a 7. Bunch of haters. For overall of 8. Sound music. 10. For David. Everyone should just have 10 for this. This should not even be a debate. But I guess Kev has an 8. Jeff has a 9. And Clay has a 9. Uh... For story setting, story setting, story slash setting, I probably should have specified that. David with a 9, Kev with a 7, Jeff with a 7, Clay with a 6, overall 7. Overall rating, David with a 9, Kev with a 7, Jeff with an 8, Clay with an 8 for an overall 8 out of 10. Whew, yeah. And I'm, I think it's a pretty good game. I mean, all all jokes aside, um, it, it it is a little bit short. It's a little bit wonky here and there, but it still throws back to so much of um, what I loved about Rare. And it's a fun little game, and I'm actually replaying it at the moment. Um, I never beat the Switch version, even though I got the limited run. Um, switch version that comes with the reproduction n64 cartridge and a switch cart i only beat it on xbox but all this time i've sort of been holding out on 100 percenting it till the switch version came and then i just kind of never got around to it so that's kind of what i'm working on right now uh, maybe 100 percent it before i move on to impossible lair which is something that we've never even talked about on the logcast 
ukulele in the impossible lair. We probably would have recorded at least 10 episodes about that if we were still doing a weekly podcast. Um, well, that being said, I think this is about all I really have. This is probably a shorter one, uh, but I wanted to dedicate this to its own episode just because I think the reviews and friends were so good and the fact that we had a little bit of unreleased content for this one. So um, next episode is it's going to be interesting. <laughs> it's kind of the everything else episode. So it's going to be a lot of weird stuff uh, on the next one. So I, I hope you uh, stay tuned for that shenanigans and you guys have a great rest of your day slash night slash evening slash weird state of time that is too complicated for me to comprehend. Good night.